wow, what a weekend it was last weekend. I think it was 23 people in the end who we got the, the privilege of baptizing right there down in the harbor. And, uh, and that video was put together entirely by a group of high schoolers. They filmed it, they edited it, everything. So... Um, and there's a display board out in the narthex in the lobby there with some photos. You can go out and take a look after the service and just see a little bit more about what God did last weekend down in the harbor. This morning, I need two volunteers. Specifically, I'd, I'd like kids, but, but if there aren't enough kids, I will take adults. <laughs> okay, come on then. We'll, ha- we'll have father and son. All right, here's what I need you to do. Come on up here. Todd, bring these, bring these balls over. All right, let's give the, give the, the big yellow ball to, uh, to the gentleman here. What's, what's your name? Remind me. Jordan. Jordan, okay. And your son, is gonna, Carter, is going to have the blue ball. And I need you guys to come and stand out here. And uh, Carter, I want you to stand still right in this spot. And Jordan, I just want you to walk around Carter in a circle. Just keep walking. And actually, may, this might work better if you hold the ball right above your head. That's it. This looks great. All right, just keep walking until I tell you to stop. They look great, don't they? So, 400 years, keep walking, 400 years before Jesus, there was a a man named Aristotle, he was a Greek man, and he taught that the earth was at the center of the universe and everything rotated around the earth. Now, Carter here represents the earth with the blue ball, and Jordan here represents the sun rotating around the earth. Keep going, guys. Um... And for almost 2,000 years, everyone believed that this was how the universe worked. And and Christians even found this idea to be true. They, They found it in the Bible. In Psalm 104, verse 5, it says, God set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. The earth should never be moved. But then something happened. Along came a Polish man named Copernicus. And he did some more investigation, and he realized that actually things made a lot more sense if we put the sun at the middle, and everything moved around the sun. Now, not everyone liked this idea at first. It was kind of shifting the way everything worked, and especially the church. The church did not like this idea. An Italian scientist named Galileo got in a little bit of a fight with the Pope over this very issue. You see, Galileo taught that the sun was at the center of the universe. But the Pope maintained that the Bible taught that the earth did not move. Galileo believed you could interpret Scripture differently, in, in a way that we could understand what it was saying differently, and, and allow the earth to move. Unfortunately for Galileo, he was condemned as a heretic. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. You've done a great job. Psalm 104, verse 5, and and similar verses like that, we now understand to refer not to the earth's physical movement, but to God's control of the earth's stability. As everything else around us crumbles and fades, the earth remains stable. It cannot be shaken, because God is in control of it. And as a church, we now believe that the sun is at the center of our solar system, not because the Bible tells us so, In fact, the Bible has very little to say about the earth's movement, as it turns out. But we believe that the sun is at the center of our solar system because science tells us 
say. We've reached the end of our Fearless Q series, and we've only got one question left. How do we reconcile the Bible and science? Now, many of you ask this question in, in different ways. Here are, here are a few examples. One person asked, as a Christian, do you really believe the earth is only 6,000 years old? Another one asked, where do cavemen and dinosaurs fit into the Bible timeline? And a third person asked, how do you answer someone's question about creation versus evolution? And these are really great questions. Because I think for many of us, we, we feel that science and the Bible are in some sort of conflict. Science tells us one thing, and, and it seems like the Bible tells us something totally different. And so this morning, I want to address that question. How do we reconcile the Bible and science? And just a little disclaimer. I've, I've got about 15 minutes left that I'm going to speak to you. And there's not a huge amount that I can cover in 15 minutes. And this is a big topic. So if you have thoughts, questions, you just want to make a comment, there's a blue piece of paper in your bulletin. I would love you to write it down on that. There should be some purple baskets on the way out, but I'm looking and they're not there, so maybe they're, maybe they're not. If, if there aren't any, just leave it on the floor, and um, <laughs> someone will pick it up. Um, and, uh, and I will try and address as many of those comments and, and questions as I can this week in a, in a video blog. So, science and the Bible. I want to start by talking a little bit about what science aims to do and what the Bible aims to do. And now I need two more volunteers. Slim Pickens here this morning. Anyone? Anyone want to help me? Two more volunteers? I, I actually do need people for this. Yeah, Todd? Okay. All right. Come on down, Dave. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what science aims to do versus what the Bible aims to do. And I believe that when we come to science and the Bible, they're actually asking different questions. See, I believe that when we come to science, science is really asking the how question. How did the earth come into existence? How do things work? How did life start? Science is primarily concerned with the question of mechanism. The Bible, on the other hand, if you come over here, I believe is primarily concerned with the why question. Why is it that the world is the way it is? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why do I exist? The Bible is primarily concerned with the question, not of mechanism, but of purpose. And in our example with the earth and the sun, science was concerned with how the sun and the earth moved. But the Bible was much more concerned with why the earth was stable. Why it could not be shaken. Now, this is a generalization. And it doesn't mean that science never asks why. It's just that when science asks why, it's usually in the form of, why is this blood vessel there? It's not so much a question of purpose, but a question of function. Why does this thing function the way it does? Rather than, why is this whole system there in the first place? So although it's a generalization, I believe it can be a helpful one when we approach the issue of reconciling the Bible and science. Because most of the time, I believe the Bible and science are not in conflict. But there are times when the Bible steps into the realm of science. 
when the Bible steps in to address some of these how questions that science is seeking to address. Questions about the physical universe and and how it functions. And one of these instances is found in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. And here the Bible does talk about how the world came into existence. And this is where we see some of this conflict. And this is one of those areas that we need to seek to reconcile. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate you being good sports. Give give them a round of applause, will you? So what does Genesis 1 say about the physical universe and how it functions? Well, if we're going to ask the question, what does Genesis 1 say, we need to understand what sort of literature, what genre Genesis, and in particular Genesis 1, actually is. Because you see, genre determines what, genre tells you what the words intend to communicate. Okay, let's say I were to write a, a letter to someone, and in this letter I wrote the words, the car flew down the road. Okay? Now, if it was a letter, you would understand I'm probably not talking about a flying car. Okay? But if it was a science paper or, or even a, a police report, you might have reason to believe that I was actually suggesting there was a flying car on the road. Okay? You see how the letter or the science paper or police report determines what the words actually intend to communicate. Genre tells you what the words intend to communicate. And so we have to ask, what genre is Genesis chapter 1? Is it, is it a scientific document? Is it, is it a poem? Is it something else? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, that Genesis was not written recently. It was written thousands of years ago in an ancient context. And in order to understand what genre is, we have to look to that ancient context. And when we do look at that ancient context, we find something very interesting. We find that every culture had their own story of creation. There was an entire genre of literature of ancient creation stories. And a lot of scholars believe that that is the genre in which Genesis 1 fell. Because they see a lot of similarities between these other creation stories from these ancient cultures and the story of Genesis 1. But what's really interesting is the differences between Genesis 1 and the other surrounding creation stories. And I believe that when we notice the differences Between Genesis and those creation stories, we really get at the heart of what Genesis 1 is intending to communicate. So what are some of those differences? Well, let's take one creation story and compare it to Genesis 1, one that we have a really good record of. That creation story is a Babylonian creation story. You remember Babylon from when we went through the story? That was where the Jews were exiled to. And this creation story is called the Enuma Elish And when we compare Genesis 1 to that story, we notice some distinct differences. Differences that many believe, and I believe, are the points that Genesis 1 really intends to communicate to its readers. Here are are the major three. The first one, God in Genesis 1 is uncreated. In the opening words of Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God. God existed before anything else. 
But in the Enuma Elish, this Babylonian creation story, we find that the universe existed first. And the gods were actually formed out of the universe. Genesis claims that God, the God of the Bible, is uncreated. The second major point that we notice when we compare is, is that Genesis claims there is one God. Okay, the Enuma Elish speaks of many gods. And more than that, in Genesis 1, the things that God created are, are not made out to be gods themselves. Okay, when, when the sun and the moon are created in Genesis, they're called light bearers, not gods. In every other ancient culture, the sun and the moon were worshipped as gods. This is really distinctive. Okay, Genesis 1 claims there is only one God. One of, a third major difference that you notice between Genesis and, 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 and the Enumera Leash is that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation in the book of Genesis. In the Enumera Leash, humans were like an afterthought created to, to lighten the loads of the gods. The gods had too much work to do, so they employed some human slaves to do it for them. But in the book of Genesis, we read of humans as being the only creatures, the only part of creation that was made in the image of God. And humans were given a special role within the created order. They were given the role of ruling over the rest of creation, having dominion, representing God's rule on this earth, having been made in his image. When we compare Genesis 1 to other books in the same genre, I believe we get much closer to the heart of what Genesis 1 is trying to tell us. But the problem is we so often read Genesis as if it was written in the 21st century by someone who had knowledge of modern science. And as a result, we, we imagine that it says things it never intended to say. Now, this doesn't mean it has nothing to say about modern science. I want to be careful here. But we need to understand first what Genesis 1 was intended to say in its original context. And in its original context, Genesis 1 was a significant statement. It was a statement to, to the surrounding nations. It was a statement to the people of Israel that, that everything in this world was the result, not of the gods of these superpowers like Babylon, but everything in this world was the result of this one God, of this tiny little nation of Israel. That the God of Israel was the only God who created everything. And he himself was uncreated. And therefore he alone is worthy of worship and praise and honor. Not these other gods. Because he alone has ultimate power. The statements that Genesis 1 makes fall much more in the why category than they do in the how category. Genesis 1 was intended much more of a statement of why things are the way they are than how things came into being. But yet we feel a significant conflict between Genesis 1 and modern science. Why is that? Well, I believe that the conflict is not so much with science as with a particular brand of scientific atheism. This brand of atheism actually has its own creation story. And this creation story is not based upon science, but upon atheistic beliefs. 
And in this creation story, creative power is given to the laws of science themselves. The laws of science are treated almost like the gods of the Enuma Elish. Stephen Hawking wrote it this way. He said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. The creation story of scientific atheists is that science itself, through its laws, has creative power. But honestly, this is a confusion of categories. The laws of science describe mechanism to us. They describe how things work. They do not tell us what the agency is. Let me explain. We know the laws of science, the laws of physics that govern a jet engine. But yet we know that those laws themselves cannot produce a jet engine for us. The laws describe the mechanism by which a jet engine can be produced. But what we need is an agency, a mechanic, to produce that jet engine. And the Bible, Genesis 1, certainly has something to say about an agent, an external agent, who created the universe, namely God. See, I wonder if the conflict we feel between science and the Bible may actually be more of a conflict between atheism and the Bible. Science, in its purest sense, cannot answer the question of whether or not there is a God. Just like science cannot answer the question of what is beauty, or why is there something instead of nothing. The major point that Genesis 1 intends to make, that God is the creator is not in conflict with science. Now, having said all this, there are some aspects of Genesis 1 that seek to address how the universe was created. There are times when Genesis 1 steps into the realm of science, into the how. It's not at the heart of what Genesis 1 is saying, and we need to be careful to realize that. But it is present. For example, it speaks of days of creation. It claims that the sun was created after there was day and night. It speaks of humanity being distinct from the animals made in the image of God. But the truth is many people have reconciled what Genesis 1 appears to be saying about how the world was created with what science says. And I wish I had another 20, 30 minutes to address a bunch of those issues. But I don't. However, if this is something that you want to read about, I found one approach particularly insightful, and that's the one of my former professor, John Lennox. His approach in the book, Seven Days That Divide the World, seeks to be faithful to the authority of Scripture and to find where current science converges with the interpretation of that Scripture. And honestly, it's quite a unique approach and very beautiful. Now, I got a few copies of this to give away. So if you will read it, come find me afterwards, and I'll be happy to give you a copy. The truth is there are many Christians who have reconciled what Genesis 1 says with science without getting rid of the authority of the Bible. They've upheld the authority of the Bible in the process. John Lennox is just one of them, but there are numerous others What the Bible says about how this world was created is reconcilable 
with science. And I believe this gives us a reason not to be afraid. Maybe for many of us, our concern regarding this issue is rooted in just that, fear. Fear that science is somehow going to destroy Christianity. Fear that science is going to make our children or grandchildren deny God. Fear that science has an almost divine-like power over our lives. And I wonder if the original readers of Genesis 1, the people of Israel, felt similarly afraid. Not of the power of science or scientific atheism, but afraid of the gods of the superpowers surrounding them. And as they heard the words of Genesis 1, they were reminded that their God, Yahweh, the God of this tiny little nation, had created everything that they saw. They were reminded that his power was matchless in comparison to the power of the nations surrounded them. And as they heard and came to know of his power, that fear was cast out. That they could trust and believe that their God, the creator of the world, who had delivered them from slavery, brought them into the promised land, that their God was the one true God. And they need not be afraid. And my prayer is that we might have that same revelation today. That our God, the same God who created the world, who came to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ to ultimately defeat the powers of this world. That our God is greater than any power in this world. And that we might be fearless. It's the name of this series. Fearless in the face of all that surrounds us. Trusting that if our God is for us, nothing and no one can stand against us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the creator of all things. God, thank you that you are powerful beyond any other power of this world. Thank you that we do not have to be afraid of these big questions. That we can approach them fearlessly, knowing that there are answers to them. And God, I pray for those of us who perhaps are afraid of the way that science is at work in this world. Who are afraid of of the way that our children or grandchildren are being taught in schools. Who are afraid of of the way that the culture is taking science and using it to push certain agendas. God, I pray that you would help us to know that the power of science is nothing compared to the power of our God. That our God, you stand above everything else as the creator of the world. As the one who will not let this world be shaken. As the one who sustains. God, may we know your power. And may that power The knowledge of that power cast out the fear that we have of the powers around us. And God, we do indeed pray for our children as they have or as they are returning to school. God, we pray that your power would sustain them, that they would come to know you as the creator of the world, the creator of the laws of science, that they would come to understand your love for them, And that God, the the power of science or the power of atheism or the power of any other agenda would not replace in their lives the power of the creator. 
the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in that name that we pray. Amen. Well, church, this is the end of our Fearless Q series. I know that us as a pastoral team have thoroughly enjoyed being able to enter into this with you. And and our prayer, like I said at the end, is that you would be fearless. That you would realize there are answers to these big questions. And that we don't have to be afraid. We can fearlessly declare the name of Jesus Christ. Fearlessly declare the truths that we hold as a body of believers. Without fear. That is our hope. And so in that hope, I wish to send you away with a blessing. A blessing from God. So raise your hands to receive it now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And God's fearless people said, Amen. Amen.